0: Well, uh, I think I want to be clear that disinformation is a huge problem and fake, you know, what's being called fake news. It is definitely a huge problem. Uh, We can talk about that more later if we want. You know, that obviously had a big impact on the election um, and so on. So it's making it hard for us to talk to our political opponents because we don't really live in the same factual universe anymore.
1: Welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm your host, Lawrence Ampofo. Today we're here with Ilya Lozovsky, formerly the editor at the Democracy Lab at the famous international affairs magazine, Foreign Policy. Before Foreign Policy, Ilya was at Freedom House, providing emergency support to human rights activists and organisations across Eurasia. You should listen to this show if you want to find out more about what the post-truth landscape is, how you can better spot fake news and how you can create meaningful informational environments for yourself. But before we start, welcome to Digital Mindfulness. We bring together the best teachers and thought leaders to teach you how to be your best self in an age of digital distraction and information overload, both at work and in your personal lives. If you're new to the show, then the best place to find out more about us is at digitalmindfulness.net forward slash start, which has a collection of some required listening podcasts, where we discuss everything from being more focused in a distracted world, to habit building, to internet addiction, and much more. Okay, so on with the show with Ilya Lazovsky. So Ilya, welcome to the show. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to sharing more of your insight and your wisdom with us, so welcome.
0: Thanks very much. I'm so glad to be here. I don't know about wisdom, but I'll do my best. <laughs>
1: <laughs> So, Ilya, I'm wondering if you can, first of all, just tell the audience a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be focusing on international affairs and foreign policy.
0: Sure. So, I guess the story starts with the fact that I was not born in the United States. I was born in Moscow in what was the Soviet Union then. I grew up speaking Russian and moved to the United States as a kid. So, while I've grown up here, I think. You probably can hear I have an American accent, but I still really uh, have always cared about that part of the world. I've been back there many times. So I guess that's really what drew my interest to international affairs in the first place. And then I've worked uh, for a human rights organization that focused, again, on the former Soviet region called Freedom House. And since then, I've been uh, working as an editor at Foreign Policy magazine here in Washington. Um, So foreign affairs is kind of what I've always... Cared about and I also studied democracy and democratization in graduate school, and that's a big part of what I think about and what I also write and uh, write about uh, today because uh, it's a big issue in the world right now and uh, seems to be in trouble.
1: So, Ilya, I'd like to focus now on the article you wrote, Facebook and Ourselves to Death, and in particular, the part where you wrote that we're living in a world now of. Um, We've always lived in a world of disinformation, um, but that's particularly important now, given the post-Brexit and the Trumpist world that we live in now. But you said that the living in a world of disinformation isn't actually the problem. And I wonder if you can just expand on that a little bit, because that sounds to me to be a pretty big problem.
0: Well, uh, I think I want to be clear that disinformation is a huge problem. And fake, you know, what's being called fake news, it is definitely a huge problem. Uh, We can talk about that more later if we want. You know, that obviously had a big impact on the election um, and so on. So it's making it hard for us to talk to our political opponents because we don't really live in the same factual universe anymore. But this is what I think uh, you're referring to in my piece. The problem goes beyond fake news because fake news that's just completely fake, you know, that just completely made up, that might be easy to eventually um get rid of or at least mitigate the impact of. You know, if Facebook becomes interested in policing content a little bit more in terms of its truthfulness, um, you could probably ban some of those sites. You could probably figure out a way that if something if something is absolutely fake, um you can sort of reduce how much it can be shared or something like that, reduce its visibility. The problem is that a lot of news isn't quote-unquote fake in that obvious way but it's still really geared in a hyper-partisan way to convincing people of sort of reassuring people that what they already believe is true and reassuring them that their opponents are irredeemable and false in all respects and that's the kind of news that's hard to get rid of that's the kind of stuff that will get shared so much more than legitimate quote-unquote um, professional journalism and that's what's really driving us apart in this country and uh certainly probably it's happening elsewhere in the world as well.
1: But wouldn't you say that this media landscape of disinformation and spin etc existed before and actually was a real problem before the internet or would you actually say that there's actually a specific problem now that we have to deal with?
0: Certainly, certainly it existed and I think there's always a danger when having these kinds of conversations of sort of Referring back to the good old days when everyone, you know, when things were better and journalism was trusted and professional. And it's always tempting to sort of have that storyline, but it's a little too tempting. So we should definitely be aware that, of course, there was bad news. You know, some of the first newspapers ever founded in America way back in the 18th century were peddling all kinds of made-up stuff. Um, But we did have sort of a set of what I like to call, and certainly I'm not the first one to use this word, gatekeepers, gatekeepers. You know, um, thinking specifically of the mid to late 20th century, you know, we had the networks that everybody would watch at night. Um, we had the major newspapers. We had good, large newspapers in every major city. Many smaller towns and cities also had sort of more, more robust and financially healthy and active local media. And that sort of kept everyone on the same page. Of course, people disagreed politically. Of course, The quality would vary, but at least we sort of were all grounded in the same factual universe. We had different values and different, you know, depending on your political views, you would interpret the facts differently, of course. But now even that like center has sort of fallen apart because people get their news online now. And as we've been saying, the sort of very nature psychologically, you know, you get that hit of dopamine when you hit the share button on something that really gives it to the other guy. And then your friends who all agree with you politically, they like to share it too. And that's the kind of stuff that spreads. And so we kind of end up moving away from that centering role that the gatekeepers used to have and just gone around them.
1: So one of the things that you've spoken about in your article and in your writing is the prevalence of echo chambers. And you've written about just how dangerous these are and how prevalent they were, particularly during the election. And And it's interesting to me because echo chambers, you know, people have written about echo chambers before and the Internet, a lot of the major online services we use, um, they're based on serving us content and other services, etc., that are based on what we've done in the past. They're based on our historical activity. So we kind of live in digital echo chambers all the time. But you were saying that these are really especially dangerous. And why would you say that is?
0: And it's also distracting us from... uh other things that could be more beneficial. You know, I was just talking a little bit about the gatekeepers, the sort of professional journalism that used to keep us all more grounded. They, in some sense, they still exist. You know, there was a, people like to complain about, you know, quote unquote, the state of journalism today, but there was a lot of really great journalism that this election produced. The New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, many other outlets really dug into his background, you know, how he's treated his contractors, his business dealings, you know, his uh, dishonesty. This was all out there. But because we're all in these echo chambers online that where like news like that doesn't really spread as much, you know, it's, it's just not shared as much. It's shared in certain circles, but it's not as widespread as the things that the things that are more partisan, because it's just, uh, it's just in our nature to prefer those things that reinforce our sort of tribal political identities. So that's the stuff that gets shared, and that's the stuff that you see. So that's really, I think, the real danger of these echo chambers, is that it distracts us from um, the actual facts.
1: But that's terrifying, though, isn't it? I mean, this <laughs> I is completely, it's completely terrifying. I mean, this is all the, the only content that kind of comes up and that comes into our cognitive map as it were it's just the stuff that people feel that they want to share not the stuff that's actually true but the stuff that resonates <laughs> that's right that's emotionally. right
0: and um you know i don't want to make a sort of a moral issue out of this it's not i don't want to like castigate people for sharing dumb links it's that uh, you know i w- i wish we were all it's just it's part of our human nature you know and we used to have Our institutions used to be, I think, better configured to sort of counteract that part of our human nature, and now because of the way social media works, and it's not just Facebook, of course, although we keep using Facebook as the example because it is so dominant in the landscape, Um, it's just working, it's sort of accelerating our very worst impulses. And I think there are ways to fight against that, you know, I think that we should be definitely all thinking and talking about how we can sort of build other systems that would be more effective at curbing those sort of tribal impulses um that's why i wrote the piece you know because i think this is a huge emergency so definitely i'm very scared about it you know it sounds like i hope i'm not depressing you too much but it sounds like sounds like you're hearing that so i think that's good that's what i'm trying to do but there's a lot of work uh you know i think we can't give up you know we got to keep trying
1: so we've just been talking a lot about truth and whether online media can be trusted or not and you've spoken a lot about this word you know gatekeepers people who are gatekeepers and particularly the mainstream media but we also have these online gatekeepers right these people of influence online and we get our news and our trusted information from them but do you think even then these online gatekeepers can be trusted in the same way as mainstream media given that the truth of online content is just so fluid
0: well who um i'm not sure exactly who you're referring to i think the thing uh certainly some people are very influential online and you know produce a lot of content that gets a lot of clicks i mean i think of the type of people like uh matt drudge you know who runs the drudge report he decides what links go what link goes up there in the front and that will be seen by god knows how many people so yes and of course uh If you look into Matt Drudge and what he believes, you will notice that he has an agenda. And, you know, if you are trying to consume news in a savvy and intelligent way, you will try to correct for that when you look at, you know, the stuff that he posts. But so many people just are, I'm afraid, are not equipped to do that. So definitely the issue of trusting, figuring out how much you can trust a particular gatekeeper is, I think, the big question because we need to become much better. We need to teach our children, you know, we need to teach people who are going to be growing up in this new world, uh, to navigate it with more skill and more savvy, I guess, and more, uh, so that's the challenge that's before us,
1: you know? So given everything that we've been talking about, and again, just how fluid and malleable the truth is when we get online, how do you think then as citizens that we're almost less equipped now to make really serious informed decisions about our society like who the next leader of our country is going to be
0: um i think it depends i mean you can be equipped to some extent you know by your natural impulses by but a lot of it has to do with education so I think there. I think we need to be better equipped, and I think, uh, you know, we can't change human nature, but what we can change is how much attention we pay to this problem in our sort of primary education when we're teaching everybody sort of our common, you know, cultural standards on how we should be acting online, how we should be thinking of things online. That could—our education could be equipping us much better. I mean, I'm—people uh, just—the vast majority of people don't think or talk about politics— You know, as much as like political pundits who live in Washington, DC and go on podcasts (laughs) do, you know, or who host the podcast for that matter. So um, we just have to remember that like people have their own busy lives and they don't have a lot of time to devote to these things and to figuring these things out. That's why I don't want to blame anybody. But I just want, I just wish that part of a basic education would include some of the easiest and most important ways that they could become savvier. I keep using that word. I wish there was a different word I would think of um, about how they consume information online.
1: Yeah, I think this is really important. And you know, you and I will talk about the more of the technical solutions, um, I think, later on in the show. But I just want to expand upon this idea of digital literacy. And just again, in the piece, you've said this just about how important it is that we start learning. Um, digital literacy skills right from when we're in school and almost how the curriculum needs to change to accommodate this but what would you say then are the most important um digital literacy skills that we need to take away with us right now and employ uh
0: there's so many facets of this i think uh really uh there you know there are some curriculums out there that have been developed that um i would look at uh but I think, from the point of view of this particular discussion we're having, I think it's about evaluating the quality of a piece of news, of a news source, whether it's a you know an image, a graph, you know that you see on Twitter or something, or a video or an article. Um, just figuring out how reliable it is, how honest it is, how much it's trying to inform you rather than to convince you of something, or deceive you, or mislead you, um, and then identifying which news sources are to be trusted and, you know, encouraging kids, uh, young adults, you know, to consume more of them. I think for me, the media literacy part of it is what I would really emphasize. But of course, there's a lot of other important uh, facets, you know, keeping yourself safe online, um, being very careful about your own privacy online, you know, those are hugely important issues as well. But I just want to highlight the media literacy part of it in this conversation.
1: So one of the things that you emphasised in the article, Ilya, was this prevalence of fact-checking and just how important it was. But also that fact-checking was for the elite. And and I just want to explore that a bit more because if facts don't seem to matter that much to people now, or particularly in the online realm, um, how important then can facts and fact-checkers be, when we have so much information coming at us that we really do just in general choose information that is most prominent within our own echo chambers? Uh,
0: That's the big challenge. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say it had no impact. I mean, I'm really glad the fact checkers were there. I think in the sort of mainstream media that the more uh, politically informed people are reading, the fact checkers were very helpful. And I certainly, I think they did an amazing job. I think the problem is again, just that the, the nature of like a long, detailed, fact-checking article is that people aren't as inclined to share it, and people aren't as inclined to read it, because it's not as fun. Because it's not as fun as you know a really sharp, sarcastic, angry blog post that's talking about how evil Hillary Clinton is, or about how evil Donald Trump is, for that matter. It's much more satisfying to share that than to share something that's long and detailed and maybe a little dry, and maybe not as clear cut because the truth is complicated. So when you're a fact checker, you know, some parts of the information you're checking are true. Some are not true. You have to sort of very carefully explain and just people aren't just as inclined to share that. So that's why I say it's for the elites. I think most people just don't read that kind of content. So that's why I was talking about education earlier, because I think we have to try to teach people to be their own fact checkers you know internally we have to teach people that they're online to have that kind of switched on in the back of their minds at all times rather than relying on someone else doing it for them.
1: So Ilya I know that a lot of your a lot of your research focuses outside of the U.S. and given that we're speaking about this whole post-truth environment I'm wondering does is the impacts of fake news and the post-truth environment, is that felt as keenly outside of the US?
0: Absolutely. I mean, if you're looking at, uh, you know, you're talking about Ukraine, Russian President President Vladimir Putin is the master of this post-truth era, because uh, it's a different situation there. You know, there, I don't know if I would say that social media is the biggest danger, or at least in the same way as it is here. There, you know, all the media is uh, sort of Either directly controlled by the state or is highly uh, incentivized to produce content that is in favor of, you know, the Russian government and Vladimir Putin. So, and he's used this kind of disinformation. This is the sort of standard tactic of these um, very professional and uh, outlets is to just throw up so many different theories. For example, the airliner that was shot down over Ukraine. Uh, Pretty clear, according to Western investigations and Ukrainian investigations and international investigations, that it was a pro-Russian separatist who fired the Russian weapon that downed the airliner. And the Russian news will acknowledge that version of the story, but it'll also throw up 10 others that are mostly crazy conspiracy theories. And so – but just by throwing so much disinformation out there, you don't have to censor the real news you know, like the Soviets used to do. You can just drown it out by – kind of creating an environment where nothing is real. Uh, There's a great author, uh, Peter Pomerantsev, who wrote a book about this called, about Russia, about the information sort of space in Russia called Nothing is True um, and Everything is Possible. And that's a I just love that title because that just kind of says it all. You know, when, when you can't figure out what the truth is, And here, this is the connection, you know, to the social media conversation we've just been having. Uh, When you can't figure out what the truth is, you're vulnerable to. uh, When you can't figure out what the truth is, there's no way to fight for it, you know. So the purveyors of misinformation will be the ones that win.
1: So we've been talking pretty freely using these terms like post-truth and fake news. But just for people that might not know or might not understand what these phrases are, what does post-truth actually mean?
0: Well, I think uh, it sort of just uh, embodies what we've been talking about already, is that this sort of environment now where people, people, as i as we were saying earlier, aren't equipped to figure out what the truth is because of the way that the information is presented to them by different sources, some of which are more trustworthy than others, we've come to an era where we can't all agree on the truth. There is a truth still out there, you know, and some of us, to some extent uh, can see it, and some of us see it to a lesser extent. And um, that's a very euphemistic way of saying it, but you know, some people are just wrong and they believe very strongly that they're right. And this is a problem that's getting worse because people aren't equipped to figure out whether someone, a source online is, or a Russian propaganda channel for that matter, is, um, you know, telling them the truth or not.
1: So then Ilya, how then do you yourself make decisions on what's true and what's not and what's valuable and what's not online?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, there's several elements to this. First of all, I think you always have to be challenging yourself. If you become too comfortable in your beliefs, you know, I'm open about the fact that, you know, politically I consider myself a moderate liberal. Uh, and, but I always try to – there's plenty of criticism of liberalism out there, you know, and I always try to read it, especially by people that are smart and that who I think are arguing from an honest place. You know, I may never agree with them, uh, but it helps me keep me honest about my own beliefs because I'm constantly challenging them. So that's an important thing is keeping that as part of your sort of information diet. Smart people you disagree with who will challenge your preconceptions. Another thing is just to be mindful of standards. You know, you people, sh- I know what j- good journalism looks like and I know what bad journalism looks like and I read the good and I avoid the bad. So that's a great way of sort of You have to police, you know, sort of the borders of your like information landscape and make sure that good stuff is getting in and bad stuff is not. And that's something that can be taught. You know, that's something I know because I work in journalism, because I've been thinking about these issues for a long time, uh, because I've taken some good classes in my day, you know, in college and grad school and earlier. Um, I wish everybody had those resources. And I think uh, that's I've been fortunate, you know, to have them and to be able to sort of curate my information diet in this way
1: i agree with you that it's definitely important to challenge ourselves by getting these different viewpoints but wouldn't you say that in this information age that that is itself part of the problem that it's actually really quite hard to jump out of our filter bubbles and find people that we really disagree with to challenge us because in the past you would just switch on the radio or the television and the content was served to you so you could get those different viewpoints but now would you say that it's more difficult to find those different viewpoints
0: precisely exactly and that's what i mean because because we all have to every time we look for some a source out there we have to Evaluate how trustworthy it is. And we're not very good at doing that, most of us. So there's a greater danger with all the availability of all these new sources of picking the wrong one, essentially, unless you really know what you're looking for. And yes, that is a problem that a lot of people face.
1: So we talked about the role of education and digital literacy, but would you also say that there's a responsibility on the side of designers and engineers to make these tools um, just better in providing different viewpoints for us?
0: Well, uh, this is a tricky topic, of course, because the moment, you know, that Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, decides to ban fake news, uh, there's going to be an outcry that he's censoring conservative opinion. You know, so there's always going to be, because while fake news exists on both sides, there's no question that it is more prevalent today in the United States, uh, in the Donald Trump camp. Uh, So it's very tricky to sort of recommend, you know, or to think even offer some thoughts about what a technology company should do because certainly you'd never want to go in the direction of censoring uh, legitimately held opinions. Um, but yes, I think that, uh, in terms of filtering and trying to promote better content, uh, I think the likes of Facebook certainly have a role to play. And it's scary that, um, Basically, Mark Zuckerberg can do whatever he wants. I mean, he's obviously a brilliant and talented uh, technology entrepreneur, and he's built this empire uh, in just a few years. But um, as a result, we're sort of at his mercy. And, you know, he sort of will determine what Facebook's policy will be. And then there's also Twitter, of course, and the other, um, you know, it's not just Mark, but he just sort of, you know, nobody elected him.
1: Would you say then that everything we're speaking about now is just a phase that will quickly die away, that people will soon um, demand truth from their online content? Or do you think that this is just the start of a trend that more campaigns will be run in the ways that we've just seen?
0: Oh, man. Um...
1: (laughs) Crystal ball.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. No, I mean, but also because it's just scary, because I'm trying to, you know, when I was writing this, I was trying to think of like, how we're going to get out of it. And I didn't think of anything. Uh, Social media is not going anywhere. You know, if something happens, you know, to Facebook tomorrow, something else will pop up in its place. You know, people, we live in this new era now. It's not, you know, you can't put the genie back inside the box. So, no, I'm afraid not. I think that uh, it's here to stay for now. I mean, eventually something will change. Something always changes. I think we can't predict what the next, you know, Era is going to look like. Nobody predicted, outside of maybe a few science fiction writers, nobody really predicted what the era of social media would look like, even as recently as fifty years ago. So maybe fifty years from now, things will look very different. Uh, but I would never venture to guess uh, <laughs> what it would look like. So I think in the meantime, that's why I keep pushing that education thing. Like we are stuck in this era, so I think we have to adapt to it.
1: Yeah. Uh, so what's the one thing that you would suggest people do? to adapt to this post-truth environment that we're living in now is it really to just go out and find smart people that we respect but that we also disagree with to almost get out of our echo chambers
0: i would just say everybody should um the things i was saying earlier about how i sort of police my information environment and i have high standards for what you read and always ask whether it's trying to be honest with you or whether it's trying to trick you and be challenge your own preconceptions and if you already know if you're already doing those things then teach someone who doesn't you know this is the kind of so you know go out there and look at some curriculums that people have developed you know if there's something you can donate to some foundation like that sort of works in this field maybe um we should all be supporting efforts to uh, help educate everyone about how best to adapt so um let's do what we can
1: brilliant so, Ilya, where can people find out more about you and your work and connects with you?
0: Oh, uh, well, uh, there's Twitter. Um, on the, I'm on there. My uh, username is Ich Bin Ilya, like in German, I-C-H-B-I-N-I-L-Y-A. And my website, IlyaLazovsky.com. Find me on Facebook. My profile is public. So I'm always happy for new friends and followers. And <laughs> Ironically
1: <after>. enough, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, well, Ilya, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show.
0: I had a great time. Thank you so much.